Hello, and welcome back to the Tim Masso Podcast. I'm so glad you've decided to join me. And I realize I have been a bit negligent in keeping this podcast stream updated. Sometimes I record a ton, and then sometimes I go dark for weeks at a time. Rest assured, I am preparing a new slate of podcasts for 2022, most of which are going to include guests. But occasionally, I will share a solo perspective, and that is what I'm doing today. This will be a companion to my February 14th Valentine's Day Watches Tonight episode over on Watchback Studios. So if you want to get the living color version of this recording, just head over to Watchbox Studios and queue up Watches Tonight for February 14th. Uncool versions of Rolex watches that I love. So let's talk about Rolex. A lot of page space and mind share is dedicated to the big three of Rolex, the GMT, the Submariner, and the Daytona. Those are cool. They're fun. That's a story for another time. And there are some cool offbeat variants that make those mass-produced, mass-market watches somewhat more endearing to the watch nerd. But we're not talking about those today. When you strip Rolex's sprawling collection of the core, you get the big three, and then there's everything else that you've stripped away. Today, we're going to talk about some of those trimmings. Cool versions of uncool Rolex watches. These are models that are not necessarily bad, just somewhat outside of the mainstream or overlooked when compared to that which is most hyped. So let's start at last year, which was year two AB after Basel World. Basel, of course, was already on its last legs before it was canceled entirely due to COVID in 2020. And all of the time since has sort of become a year-round release schedule. The two model years since the end of Basel World have been a sprawling expanse of new model releases from Swatch, the Richemont companies, the Independence, and of course, Rolex Tudor. So 2021 was perhaps a breakthrough for cool versions of a watch that just isn't sexy. The Datejust 36 was last redesigned in its entirety back in 2018. It got a new movement, it got a new reference. But the coolest version of the current Datejust 36 did arrive back in 2021 as the Palm Dial. Green was the color of 2021, but Rolex didn't follow the script. Available in steel with white gold, full steel, steel with yellow gold, and steel with rose gold, the palm dial looks different depending on which metal you choose. If you buy it in yellow gold with steel, that two-tone model features a yellow gold palm dial. If you buy a two-tone steel and rose gold, that palm dial is silver. But the steel palm and the white Rolosaur steel white gold palm were the standouts because not only were they a bold metallic green, but there's actual imagery of flora on the dial. It's a brash play from a conservative brand and yet another exhibit in the mounting evidence of a Rolex dial renaissance, and we need to take this seriously, we've now got bright lacquered Stella dials, we've had red grape and white wine dials, we have had dark rhodium dials, we have had meteorite dials, we've had turquoise dials, stone Eisenkeisel dials, just about everything. I feel like we're sort of witnessing a reawakening of the Rolex dial liberalism that existed from the 1970s through the 1980s, and I'm very excited about this. So Rolex's corporate color is green. So the 2021 steel or steel white gold Datejust 36 palm dial uh, 
is very important because, like I said, Rolex's corporate color is green. Go into any Rolex boutique, you will see the color green everywhere, and that's no mistake. Rolodeco is a Rolex company that does nothing but design the interiors of Rolex authorized dealers. That is why green is so prominent. And green is to Rolex what blue was to the French Bourbon monarchy. It is the cardinal color. This is one of the most distinctively Rolex Rolex watches you can buy, the green Palm Dial Datejust 36. It's also a watch that is discovered, meaning that people knew it was cool immediately. So while the Datejust 36 is still broadly available, including in two-tone, the $7,250 steel Palm Dial has about an aftermarket price of between $18,000 to $20,000, which proves that even an uncool Rolex model can become a very hot ticket. Now, don't forget Rolex's other quasi-dress watch. Just as the Datejust is a quasi-dress watch, the Daydate, which is almost identical in size and form, is a quasi-dress watch, and that goes for the larger Daydate 40 as well. The thing about the Daydate is that it runs the spectrum from very dressy to almost a sports watch. And no one is going to fight you at the Rolex dealer for a 228238, which is a yellow gold silver dial Daydate 40. But if you consider something like the warm 36 millimeter reference 128239, a white gold blue gradient vignette dial, that's a very different matter. All of a sudden, that watch is in demand and difficult to obtain. And while it theoretically retails for $39,000 and change, you're going to have trouble finding one in a dealer's case. So on the one hand, you have a Daydate that will sit for weeks or months without being sold, silver dial, yellow gold. And on the other hand, you have a white gold blue gradient dial that is probably going to be a piece ordered in advance and subject to at least a small wait list. But if you think yellow gold can't play up in the modern market on a day date, rest assured that it can. Because for $44,200, you can get your hands on a day date turquoise dial. And I don't mean the dial is the color turquoise. I mean, it is a literal sliver of cut and polished and stabilized turquoise stone. And it is gorgeous. Now, Hublot likes to play up its fusion of materials, but Rolex appears to be holding all the cards these days. When it comes to combining case metals with dials, Rolex is the game. Keep in mind, $44,200 might seem like a lot of money for a Daydate 40 in yellow gold, especially when you consider that if this were a silver dial version, you could probably even get a little bit of a discount. But put a turquoise dial on that watch, and the price surges to over $100,000 on the aftermarket. So, as with the steel sports watches, if you can get the 36mm or the 40mm turquoise dial, day date, at retail price, buy with confidence. It will never be worth less than you pay for it, and it will probably always be worth quite a bit more. It's a very handsome watch, and I'll be honest, there's a little bit of a range of prices, right around $75,000 to get the watch in 36 millimeters, to over $100,000 to get the turquoise dial at 40. I would go for 36, and here's why.
First of all, yellow gold is overpowering. As a material, it doesn't play up on a bigger case. If you're going to go bigger, go rose gold. If you're going to go much bigger, go with a white metal. But 36 millimeters in yellow gold feels just about perfect to me. Now, there's another thing that you need to know. The turquoise dial is jeweled. So the turquoise dial features gem set indices and numerals, which is not to every taste. But I think that's acceptable on a watch this attractive. Gem set cases are super polarizing. I think a gem set dial is more tolerable, including for men, including in Western markets. And the aftermarket price of this watch seems to verify that. I'll also say this. This watch should be Cellini branded. The turquoise dial Daydate should be Cellini branded. It would solve Rolex's problem with dress watch marketing. Think about this. Rolex, since 2014, has put a ton of money into Cellini. Conventional, round-cased watches on straps. That is not what people think of when they think of Rolex. They think of oyster cases. They think of sports watches. They think of bracelets. If Rolex would just decide that exotic dial versions of its watches, its oyster case watches, super luxe versions of its oyster case watches, and even limited editions of its oyster case watches would be Cellini branded, then it wouldn't have to worry about trying to sell people on the idea of a Rolex dress watch that looks like anyone else's dress watch. You would sell them a more expensive, luxurious, and exclusive version of an existing Rolex model in an exotic variant. So let's take a look at Mercedes-Benz to understand why this works. Maybach was a standalone brand in the 2000s, and it was a failure. Maybach cars looked too much like Mercedes-Benz cars, and people weren't fooled. At the same time, Mercedes was admitting that Mercedes-Benz was not the best car Daimler could build anymore. Maybach was. So the people who had the money weren't convinced, and other people who'd previously held Mercedes-Benz in esteem started to suspect that they weren't putting in the effort anymore because Maybach was now the star power. Well, by making Maybach a trim level at the top of the Mercedes model line, it helped Mercedes-Benz immensely giving them a flagship that's still Mercedes-branded, but now Maybach is the best Mercedes-Benz rather than something better than a Mercedes-Benz. And this has allowed the company to compete with Bentley and Rolls-Royce, which was the original intent of their Maybach standalone brand, without devaluing the Mercedes-Benz brand itself. And Cellini to Rolex should be like Maybach or Mercedes-AMG, the most expensive, the most exclusive, and the most existing version of existing Rolex models, just like Maybach and AMG are the most expensive and exclusive versions of existing Mercedes-Benz models, like the S-Class, the GLS, or the Geländewagen. You would have yellow gold strap-clad Rolex Submariners. You would have super luxe day dates with turquoise dials. Perhaps you could even have super luxury versions of sky dwellers with white gold cases and bracelets and meteorite dials. What could be more sky oriented than a meteorite dial sky dweller? So I think by taking a look at the day date turquoise dial and conceiving that as a Cellini 
We've answered the question of what a super luxe Rolex dress watch should be. Don't bother with the lower end Cellinis. Cellini should be the ultimate, most exclusive version of every existing Rolex watch. Then Cellini doesn't have to be a collection of orphaned standalone dress watches. Okay, more underrated Rolex watches. We are talking about uncool models in their coolest variants. So we're gonna come back to the day date two. Now we talked about 36 millimeter and 40 millimeter day dates, but from 2008 to 2014, there was an even bigger day date, the 41 millimeter day date two. It was the original big day date that is larger than 36 millimeters. And it remains even today, a commanding expression of excess and innovation. It was so overpowering, however, that it caught your typical Day-Date buyer off guard, and it never caught on like the later and better marketed Day-Date 40. The Day-Date 40 could wear on a smaller wrist. Everything about it was different. It was a true lug-to-lug across the wrist. It was about, the Day-Date 40 is about 47.5 millimeters across the wrist. The Day-Date 2, even though it's only one millimeter larger, it has solid end links on its president bracelet, which means it measures about 53.5 millimeters across the wrist. Now we're getting into 44 millimeter Panerai Luminor territory. You can see why this was a tough sell to the original buyer of a 36 millimeter Rolex Day-Date. So 2008 was year one for the Day-Date 2, and the Platinum model in particular was a major mold breaker. This was by far the heaviest and largest dress watch Rolex had ever released, even compared to the old Cellini Midas, the 1960s Midas that preceded the Cellini Midas, and the Rolex 5100 Texan, the Beta 21 full bracelet in gold, even compared to those, the Day-Date 2 in Platinum was immensely heavier. Dial detail was extraordinary. In particular, the Platinum exclusive Ice Blue was a stunner, and it had the rare quality of being more impressive the closer you get. Most Rolex watches are designed to be recognized from an arm's length. For better or for worse, there's two reasons for that. One, Rolex wants a Submariner of any era or a Daytona of any era to be recognized for the model it is. But second, and perhaps more to the point, Rolex wants the status symbol value of a Rolex watch to be high. So these are designed to be recognized from an arm's length. The closer you get to the dial of a Daytona or a Sub or a GMT, you don't necessarily appreciate it more. They don't get finer as you get closer. You don't feel tempted to loop those dials. But on the Day Day 2, looking at the ice blue dial, you absolutely feel like you need to get closer. The graining is beautifully subtle on the sunburst. Ice blue, which is a very subtle, almost sea ice blue, plays up the closer you get. From a distance, it looks almost silver. The closer you get, you begin to see why it's named after sea ice, which is the ice that forms over open water. That has a lovely subtle blue tint to it, and that's where Rolex got this color. On the ice blue dials, we have gorgeous blued numerals and blued steel hands, and they look the business. We also have a very subtle railroad track outboard in blueprint that's designed to let you more precisely read the minutes of the day. 
Now, the watch includes a unique movement that was never used on any other Rolex watch. So the caliber that's inside the Date-A2, the 3156, it is only used on the Date-A2, and that makes it relatively uncommon in Rolex history. It's rare that we see a Rolex model that features a model-exclusive or single-generation movement never used on another reference. We saw that, for example, with the Rolex Truebeat of the 1950s, the deadbeat seconds. And we saw it with that Beta 21 powered Rolex 5100. No other Rolex ever used a Beta 21. So we have that exclusive Date A2 movement. And in platinum form, we got another innovation, not just the size, but the fact that the platinum bracelet was the only Date A2 bracelet that got ceramic coated pins. For years, the bane of every Rolex watch, but especially the President's, was Rolex bracelet stretch. When you get an old Rolex, the first thing you do, if you're a buyer or a collector, is you hold it out. You hold it out with the crown sticking up or sticking down, so the bracelet is cantilevered outward. And then you see how much the bracelet sags. Does it look like an accordion? If it does, that bracelet is through. And that's always one of the first things you check. And this is called bracelet stretch among Rolex collectors, but that's not what's actually happening. The bracelets don't stretch. What happens is that the pins inside the links wear down over time. And as those pins get thin, the play in the bracelet increases. And that is the root cause of so-called Rolex bracelet stretch. Well, no bracelet was more susceptible stretch than the president. By inserting ceramic-coated pins, Rolex was experimenting on a flagship model with a flagship feature, much like, for example, General Motors will try its most advanced features first at a Cadillac price point without risking pricing customers out of the market with an advanced feature, they'll put it into a flagship model where the higher price point and profit margin can support a more expensive feature, like for example, self-driving their super cruise system. So what starts in a Cadillac will eventually work its way down to a Buick, then eventually down to Chevrolet. Well, Rolex started ceramic coated pins on only the platinum Date-8 2. By the time we get to the Date-8 40, Every version, whether made of gold or of platinum, has the ceramic coated pins. If you want the first, you want the Date 8 2 in platinum. And that is important. But for once, for all of the technical interest of the unique movement, and of the special bracelet, and of the ice blue dial, it wasn't the ice blue version at all that was the coolest of the Date 8 2s. The ice blue wasn't even the coolest of the platinum Date 8 2s. Neither was the respectably cool Blue Wave Platinum Date-82. No, the Platinum Date-82 with the stealth dial is by far the meanest watch Rolex has ever made and my all-time favorite Date-8, regardless of era, size, or dial. This thing, and you're going to have to look it up online, it is sinister. It has a near total blackout of the dial. The only parts of the dial not blacked out are the hands, the date wheel, and the Rolex crown. This dial is meaner than a KGB chief rolling in a Russian zill. 
It's a Northrop B-2 stealth bomber crashing the ISIS Super Bowl party. It's Tony Soprano pounding on your door when the protection money is two months overdue. This thing is what Hublot's all-black collection wishes it could be. It is so sinister that when I first saw one of these watches, I actually thought it was aftermarket. It looked like something that Bamford or Pro Hunter would do. But to my great surprise, this was a Rolex factory dial on a flagship piece. Look for the stealth dial, all black, platinum, day day two, if you want to own the meanest looking Rolex that has ever been. And I should mention, the dial is black, the numerals, which are Arabic, are blackened, and there's this lovely set of strakes or engraved gadroons, like the engravings of like the engravings of a reverso case, and those sit underneath the hour track. It is a very cool looking watch, a monster that makes every steel Rolex sports watch, every GMT, every Sea Dweller, every Submariner in Daytona look like a flick flack by comparison. And the market is starting to take notice. Uh, there was a period when the Platinum Day Day 2 in general, as a used watch, traded near or below its final listed retail price, which was $62,500. So this watch, which went off the market after 2014, its last listed cataloged retail price was $62,500. Today, we're starting to see collectors who recognize the pioneering role of this watch and its rarity. Uh, they're starting to pay low to mid $80,000 prices. So you're seeing like $82,000 to $85,000 being paid for the platinum models, especially for the rare stealth black dial. Now, most men, moving on to our next star, consider exactly two and only two date just options. They consider the 36 millimeter watch, which is traditional. That was the size of the original back in 1945. And the 36 has been available since those first examples, the first 100 limited edition date justs back in 1945. But then we also got a 41 millimeter date just in 2009. And initially this was called the date just two. It was only available, for example, on the oyster bracelet. And it had some proportional issues, uh, the crown to the dial, the dial to the bezel. There were some things that a lot of folks thought were just a little bit off. They didn't complain about the case size like they did with the Date 8 2, but they complained about the proportions, which is why in 2016, Rolex kept the 41 millimeter case, but relaunched the model as the Date Just 41. That said, we're not talking about the 41 or the 36. An uncool date just that straddles, or I should say sits between the 36 and the 41, is the 39 millimeter Pearlmaster. The few men ever consider, mostly because the average Pearlmaster is a jumble of gems fit for a music video or peacocking at the Dubai Mall. But with greater male watch collector appreciation, of some of the better designed Rolex gemmed efforts like the GMT Patriot in red, white, and blue, and the gold, yellow, rose, and white gold Daytona Rainbow. With better appreciation of these, an opening has appeared to consider the best of three jeweled Datejust Pearl Masters released at Basel World 2015. A quick note about gem set Rolex watches. They are the last 
handcrafted Rolex watches. On a standard Rolex watch, like a GMT, an Oyster Perpetual, or a Daydate, the only actual manual part of the assembly is the placement of the movement inside of the case. So that is the only part of standard Rolex watch assembly that still requires a human being. While service is done manually, assembly and finishing are not. That's not the case with the gem set watches. There is an atelier in the canton of Geneva where Rolex gem setters work in an environment that is exactly like you would have seen where gems were set by jewelers back in the 18th century or the 19th century. They work with natural light. They work with traditional tools. They will spend hours with torches and micrometric tools, loops and jigs to set the gems into Rolex dials and Rolex cases. And the entire process is by hand. Something like a Daytona Rainbow or a GMT Patriot takes hours of manual labor. And these are the most highly skilled craftsmen who work at Rolex. So when you look at a gem set Rolex watch, don't think music videos, don't think glitterati. Think métier d'art, because it is the last craft art practiced manually inside of Rolex. Now, consider the Pearl Master 39 as it debuted in white gold at Basel World in 2015. There were two other models that debuted alongside it, but ah, colored gold. No, you want to consider the 86349, which was white gold. Now, the color of this watch is best described as the full spectrum from red to blue. And it's nicely complemented by a sunburst red grape dial. Yes, the red grape, as you would have seen on, for example, the Oyster Perpetual. It is quite handsome, and it's beautifully resonant with the color of the bezel. Gradiated sapphires are mounted on the bezel using an invisible setting. So invisible setting means you don't see the telltale pincers, the gold brackets that you'll find, for example, holding a gem in place on a wedding ring. No, you have the outer face of the bezel and the inner face of the bezel where it abuts the sapphire. And then between them, you have these flush fit, invisibly set sapphires, and they run the gamut from blue to red. And the gradient between each one is so subtle, you can barely sense the shift, but it has a wonderful gradient as you ring around the bezel, and the dial itself does include diamond setting as well. It's a festival of color. It has a lot of character. It is still for the confident man. It's not for a shrinking violet, even though it's mostly violet in color, and it's not for a bashful collector. But if you appreciate what the gem set Rolex watches represent, this white gold 39 millimeter Datejust is the coolest version of the Pearl Master, which is profoundly uncool to most guys. The watch itself is also quite attractive. The case lines in white gold are graceful, and water resistance is 100 meters, so it's like any other Datejust. It was also among the first Rolex watches to use the 3235, which is the most recent version of Rolex's standard automatic 
that has a 70-hour power reserve. This is reference, if, if you want to go search this online, this is reference 86349 SAF UBL. We know that Rolex reference numbers are usually alphanumeric, and while we generally know the numeric portion, the alpha can be tough to find. So this is 86349 SAF UBL. Now, a note about these. These watches are made in hundreds of examples per year, not the thousands to tens of thousands you find with the non-gem set Rolex models. Because these are craft manufactured and craftsman made, they are always going to be limited, not by Rolex's ability to run the machines, but by a man's and a woman's ability to make these things by hand. And that's a wonderfully endearing quality that you do not find on the in-demand Rolex sports watches. Now, in terms of the market for these, their retail prices were in the mid-80s. They're no longer available as they were made. But they trade at or slightly below their mid $80,000 retail price from 2015, which means today you're actually looking at them somewhat depreciated compared to what they originally cost. And that's remarkable in a market where, heck, inflation for groceries is running between 7 and 8%. So you can get these watches for relatively less and, and quite a bit less than they originally cost when they were new when you factor in inflation. Why is this important? It's because the GMT Patriots and the Rainbow Daytonas have already gone nuts. I've even seen examples of the infamous SACO, the Seiko Leopard Daytona, sell for over their original retail price. So even those are picking up. And compared to the completely tasteless 2004 SACO, the Leopard Daytona, the, the Madonna Daytona, um, the 86349 is gorgeous. It's only a matter of time before these take off. Now, we should talk vintage. Uh, I'm going to talk about a watch that represents not an uncool reference or a cool version of an uncool reference, but a watch that a lot of Rolex collectors just flat out don't know about. And that is the Rolex Texan. Now, this watch has been so uncool for so long that I'm surprised, frankly, the vintage scene hasn't picked up on how special it is. Never mind the mainstream collector, never mind the speculator or the flipper, I'm surprised that the vintage Rolex crowd hasn't picked up on how rare and special the 1970 Rolex 5100 is. So let's... Let's go back and, and let's talk about where this came from. In the early 1960s, a consortium of Swiss watch manufacturers decided that they were going to explore the potential of the still new quartz timing technology for use in a wristwatch. So the consortium worked through CEH, which was the Centre Electronique Horloger. And they started with the Beta 1 movement, they proceeded to the Beta 2 movement, and then in 1969, they announced the first Swiss quartz wristwatch movement for series production, the Beta 21, and it was nothing like a modern quartz watch, and I mean absolutely nothing like a modern quartz watch. It had a weird beat rate that was significantly lower than what we call 
a quartz beat rate today. And it had a series of step-down circuits that would reduce the quartz oscillation to, I think, 260 hertz, which is audible. So when you hold a beta 21 against your ear, it actually sounds like an Accutron. And a lot of folks actually think that whereas the one hertz tick of a modern quartz watch is a turnoff, the Beta 21 actually has a little bit of soul and a little bit of heartbeat. Uh, it, it has a lovely endearing hum to it, but that's not what we're talking about. What's key is that among the almost two dozen brands that cooperated with CEH in the creation of the Beta 21, the most prominent was Rolex. And so Rolex in 1970 released its first quartz watch with a Beta 21, and that was the reference 5100, which gained the nickname the Texan. Now ZZ Top, which is a Texas rock band, they have a song called Tush, and people misinterpret it. It's not about seeking shall we say, lush companionship. Tush is actually a term that's used in Texas to describe many things that are luxurious and cushy and opulent. A Cadillac is cush. A luxury hotel is cush. Pappy Van Winkle is cush. And the Rolex 5100 was cush. So that nickname, the Texan, it works. And it was huge for the time. It measures 40 millimeters, and it's an integrated bracelet case design. And James Dowling, who's probably the world's foremost Rolex scholar, he has actually uncovered evidence that the Texan, the Beta 21, the Rolex 5100, was designed by Gerald Genta as a sort of warm-up for the better-known integrated bracelet sports watches from AP, Patek, and IWC that he would design during the 1970s. And the Rolex 5100 was effectively the prototype of all of those, preceding the Royal Oak by two full model years. So not only was the watch huge by dress watch standards, not only was it a true dyed-in-the-wool Gerald Genta design of its era, but it was rare, and it was a limited edition. One of only a handful of Rolex limited editions ever made. They made 1,000 pieces of which eight to 900 are believed to have been in yellow gold and about 100 are believed to have been created in white gold. Now that is the model that I would prefer. But the yellow gold watch is still quite attractive and scarce. Every version of this watch is historically important. And it's important to note that only about 6,000 Beta 21 movements were built to be distributed to all brands that chose to partake and market Beta 21 watches. That includes your IWCs, your Patek Philippe's, your Bucherers, but only one was the Rolex. Now, if you think 6,000 Beta 21s were made and 1,000 of them were Rolex 5100s, well, that means that the Rolex was probably the most numerous Beta 21 model. But still, Rolex volume is also considerably higher than every other brand that built a Beta 21 watch, which makes it quite special. It was a pioneer. It was one of the earliest Rolex watches to use, for instance, a sapphire crystal. 
It was one of the only ever Rolex limited editions, and it will always hold the distinction of being the first Rolex quartz watch, and to date, the only Rolex watch that we know for a fact was designed by Gerald Genta. Now, Genta has spoken obliquely about the Oyster Quartz, saying that he still considered that to be his original design. But if you look at the Oyster Quartz, while it might be an integrated bra bracelet tonneau case, it is very different in both case and bracelet design from the 5100. That is a unique design. Everything about this watch is desirable. And for years, amongst Rolex vintage collectors who go nuts over Bart Simpson dials, double Swiss underlines, Submariner 6200 and... 5510 Big Crowns, Submariner Explorer Dials, uh, Rolex Truebeat 6556 Chronometers, Jean-Claude Killy Dato Compacts Pre-Oyster Cases. They go nuts over these things that are relatively plentiful compared to the number of still serviceable, well-maintained, and well-kept Texans. So if you look at what it costs to get a Rolex 5100 right now, this uncool, Prototype Quartz Vintage Rolex can be had for about 75000 if you want to get one of the roughly 100 white gold examples of the 5100. And you can pay between twenty five and 35000 if you want to get one of the still scarce 800 to 900 count yellow gold 5100s. This is a rare opportunity, guys. Right now, Keep in mind what people are paying for completely mass-produced generic Rolex watches. The Rolex black and blue GMT in steel on an Oyster bracelet is about a $10,550 watch. People pay $28,000 for it. The Daytona costs $13,150. People are paying over $40,000 for it. This is crazy. An Oyster Perpetual, 41, costs about $6,100. People are now paying $30,000 for those. All of these markets will see corrections. All of these watches will eventually take a haircut. But I can guarantee you this. If you pay $35,000 for yellow gold Rolex Texan, uncool as it may be right now, you will never lose a cent on that watch. Hang on to it. Wear it for fun to your Red Bar meetings. Enjoy it for what it is. And then someday, if you're of such a mind, you can sell it and put a down payment on a house or pay your kids way through college. Guys, that is the power of the uncool Rolex. I'm going to be back with additional interviews and co-casts with co-hosts in the near future. But remember, always email me at Monday Mailbag. That's Monday Mailbag at thewatchbox.com if you want to suggest future interviewees for this podcast or topics for this podcast. Until then, time out, Tim out, and thanks for logging on.